John 13. I'll read there in a minute. As uh, Josh reviewed for us in the calendar, Palm Sunday kicks off Holy Week. And some of you grew up in a tradition where the, the liturgical services, the extra times coming to church, the rhythm of the week feels very familiar. Others, uh, others of you grew up in a tradition where you showed up on Easter Sunday, no different, maybe with a little nicer outfit, maybe with a nice big hat, the ladies. Um, but the question might be, why does GRC go through the rhythm of this week? Why do we do what we do? And the simple answer is that the Easter season, Lent leading up to Holy Week, far more than Advent leading up to Christmas, describes the highlight of all of history, not just all of salvation history. This is it. This is the crux. That's where we get that word for cross. This is the crux of all of history. Holy Week is called Passion Week, which we get from the Latin word for suffering, And that tells us what the theme or the mood of the whole week is going to be about, at least through Saturday, Uh, what we will remember, what we will reenact in services, the songs, the kinds of songs that we'll sing. And today, uh, in song, if not in the sermon passage itself, we think about the triumphal entry. Josh started the service with that theme. Donald uh, included that in his prayer. But the crowd's which had gathered in Jerusalem in advance of the Passover feast, were shouting, Hosanna, save us, O Lord. And they quickly quickly changed that chant days later when they realized that Jesus was not going to provide for them the kind of political deliverance that they wanted him to provide. And they abandoned him. This morning, we'll look at a scene from John chapter 13 on the night when Jesus was betrayed. And so we're, in a sense, previewing Thursday uh, on Thursday, Josh mentioned, Monday, Thursday, we'll gather for a dinner meal followed by the sacramental meal. On Friday, we'll gather to mourn the darkest of all days when the God-man gave up his life to rescue sinners like us. And then next Sunday, well, I won't give away the, uh, the end of the story. You'll have to just come back and find out <laughs> next Sunday. If Jesus' triumphal entry shows us something about his humility entering Jerusalem on a colt, the foal of a donkey, then this passage highlights all the more clearly his servanthood, the extent to which he would go to demonstrate this humility. John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Listen carefully. These are God's words. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. 
Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of this window into an intimate evening with your closest disciples. Thank you, Lord, for scripture recorded for our benefit. Thank you for the the glimpse into your glorious character, Lord Jesus, exemplified in your humility. Show us how this paradox uh, is at the heart of salvation and work that gospel paradox deeply into our hearts. We pray in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. We need to set the stage first with the mood. And I want you to imagine that you are one of Jesus' closest disciples, the 12. Pilgrims have been gathering in Jerusalem for weeks now. And the buzz uh, in the city is in anticipation of the great Passover feast, the, the greatest of all feasts throughout the year. But the the buzz has something else to it than just people gathering for a religious festival. As a disciple, you would remember hearing that John the Baptist, early on in Jesus' ministry, called him Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that label had Passover written all over it. The lamb that was sacrificed and the blood that was painted on the doorposts. You'd recall being with Jesus a few Passovers Uh, years back when Jesus cleared the temple and provoked the religious authorities when he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. And you would probably cringe at the memory, thinking to yourself, was that whip really necessary, Jesus, in your righteous anger, clearing, overturning the money tables outside the temple courts? You'd remember him feeding the 5,000 right before another Passover And then speaking of his body and blood being offered as nourishment necessary for eternal life. And you would remember the death threats that came soon after that, John chapter 6. At the Feast of Tabernacles, John chapter 7, uh, you'd, you'd remember the religious authorities trying to seize Jesus. He had gone too far. But throughout the Gospel of John, we read John saying and Jesus saying, His time or his hour had not yet come. Jesus' calendar had nothing to do with what the religious authorities were thinking or acting. He would carry out his mission until it was completed. You'd cringe again at remembering Jesus, John chapter 8, saying to his opponents, before Abraham was born, I am. A statement 
that was accurately understood by these opponents as a claim to divinity, prompting them to pick up stones to kill him. And even his healing of the man who was born blind, John chapter 9, prompted the authorities to threaten persecution against anyone who associated themselves with Jesus. Then when he raised Lazarus from the dead, John chapter 11, the plot to arrest and kill Jesus accelerated. That was it. That was the final straw. In the back of your mind, you'd remember Jesus telling you as the closest disciples that he must uh, be arrested, he must suffer, he must be rejected by the religious authorities and then killed. And that never made any sense. And that still sticks in your mind as possibly some bad falafel Jesus had that day because messiahs don't talk like that. Messiahs don't let people arrest them. Messiahs don't suffer. They're victorious. They make other people pay the price in justice. So with the Passover feast approaching, the buzz in the city was cause for anxiety. People whispering, shadowy figures lurking about, plotting something unknown. The religious fervor of the festival meant that... um, the. The Jewish identity was fiercely protected, and any threat against it was vigorously opposed. Crowds gathered meant that a mob could quickly form um, and rise up in opposition against anything in their way. And so you, as a disciple of Jesus, on this night, you might have grabbed your dagger and strapped it to your waist just in case something happens. Jesus, in great contrast is laser-focused because he knows what the day ahead will involve. This is the climax of all of history. This is the execution of the plan that he and the Father had arranged from all eternity past. And Jesus might be a little frustrated at you, one of his disciples, because you're looking out the window, you're double-checking the deadbolt, you're whispering nervous, fearful, still not quite getting that Jesus is not going to claim the throne of Israel the way you think he's going to claim it. And so he needed to get your attention. And during the meal, he stood up, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and did the unthinkable. He started washing your feet. It leads us to Jesus' humility. Why is that unthinkable? The first reason is that verse 3, moving into verse 4, just does not make any sense. It doesn't belong. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. All power and authority are given to the Son. And the reason he's returning to the Father is because Jesus belongs on the throne of heaven, ruling and reigning over all things. That's verse 3. Verse 4, so he got up to wash their feet? What? Did we read this right? We should be reading, since all things are placed under Jesus' authority, he got up to go off and pound the devil and all of his demons into the dust of hell. Yeah, Jesus, go. That's, That's what the Messiah needs to do. And instead, Jesus got up to serve as a humble servant. If you lived in first century Palestine, you'd wear open-toed sandals and walk on dirt roads 
with dirt being the cleanest thing on the dirt roads because the emission standards for first century transportation did not require curbing your donkey or your mule or your cow. And when you walked on these dirt roads, your feet would be far worse than just brown and dusty. They would, they would have a stench and lack hygiene. And the reality is that foot washing was a job reserved for the lowest of servants. In fact, ancient literature shows us that Jews insisted that fellow Jewish bond servants, household servants, shouldn't be required to wash people's feet. That was a task only fit for Gentile slaves or, sign of the times, women, children, or pupils, not even for the household servants. The disciples were probably so embarrassed that they uh, didn't know what to do. Well, Peter always knew what to do, and that was use his mouth. And he said in verse 6, Lord, you are washing my feet? Never. Peter can't accept the shocking reversal of these social roles. If anything, the disciples should have been washing Jesus' feet, even though that was really far out of, of their minds. Um. If anything, the disciples should have done what Mary had just done in the previous chapter when she used her tears as the water and her hair as the towel in washing Jesus' feet and anointing him with perfume, preparing him for his burial. By the way, if you're on the Lenten devotional list, that was this morning's devotional with a great creative approach with a poem um, helping us interact with this scene from John chapter 12. But as shocked as the disciples were, it was entirely consistent with all of Jesus' life, starting from the very beginning. Incarnation is the big word that we use to describe the reality behind Christmas. In the flesh, incarnation, God um, taking upon himself the stuff of humanity, the holy and divine, taking on himself the mundane. He had come in the humility of an animal stable and laid in an animal feeding trough because there was no room for them in the inn. He had grown up in obscurity all those years, the son of a carpenter, a nobody manual labor in a nobody town called Nazareth. And even when he began his public ministry, he had consistently stepped away from the crowds. He had denied their urging to become king, kept to his pattern of prayer and teaching and healing, mostly out in the countryside, far away from the hustle and bustle of the center city urban uh, areas like Jerusalem, where he would attract even more attention. The washing of feet was so earthy and so mundane and so Jesus, consistent throughout his life. There was nothing glamorous, kingly, powerful, attention-grabbing about foot washing. It was pure servanthood. It required one to bend down low, to stoop, or even get on your hands and knees. It was lowly, and it was classic Jesus. Jesus removing his outer garments is another symbol of his humility because an adult, no adult, let alone a teacher or someone with authority and social status, would ever take off even their outer garments in public. Interesting, as we read the Gospels, that the next time Jesus' garments will come off is at the hands of the mocking Roman soldiers 
who will replace his robe with a crown of thorns and a purple garment in mockery of his claim to be the king of the Jews. And interesting that even that garment will come off when he goes to the cross and hangs naked. Humility moves into humiliation. Even if all this makes sense given Jesus' pattern of humility, we might ask, why now? Why why foot washing on this penultimate night of his life? Verse 1 tells us, having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Another Another way to translate that in your footnote, probably in your Bible, says Jesus wanted to love them to the last of his life. He, he had this one final opportunity to communicate to his disciples why he had come, not to be served, as Mark's gospel records Jesus saying, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They still didn't fully understand, the disciples. And so Jesus decided to demonstrate it very concretely. This is a parable. Uh, this is a, an enacted parable, an illustration of why he had come and how he would leave. He's demonstrating why he had come and how he would leave. And the washing pointed to the disciples' need for cleansing because of sin, which would require the cross. This is the way the Apostle Paul describes the humility of Jesus in the great Christ hymn of Philippians chapter 2. He says, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of the servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the shocking part, especially to a first century audience. A Roman cross, the worst death you could possibly experience, the most humiliation. That last word, wraps us up this morning. Throughout this gospel, I mentioned earlier that uh, the, the gospel writer John and Jesus himself say that Jesus' hour or his time has not yet come. The first time he says that, he says it to his mom. It's at the wedding of Cana, John chapter 2. She wants him to work this miracle. He says, Mom, my time has not yet come. You're, you're wanting me to accelerate things. Um, and he's a good Jewish boy. He does what his mom wants. Okay, but we, we read this throughout the gospel. His hour had not yet come. That's why the religious authorities couldn't seize him, try as they might to bring all the army of Rome. They couldn't get him because he was operating according to his and the Father's plan. But in verse 1, John says that Jesus knew that the time or hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. The story of his life is coming to its intended climax. And I say intended again because Jesus was no passive victim here. He wasn't someone carried along by the circumstances that were out of his control. No, the intended climax was intended because he planned it. He actively orchestrated it with his sovereign power and he wanted to demonstrate one last time the full extent of his love. Two words help us see Jesus' willing, chosen servanthood and humility. 
we go back first to John chapter 10, uh, there Jesus is describing himself as the good shepherd. And he says, a good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then he says in verse 17, I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and an authority to take it up again. And there's far more repetition if we read more than just those couple of verses. Lay down. It's the Greek word tithemi. Take up. It's the Greek word lambano. And laying down one's life is the ultimate act of sacrifice, is it not? Giving yourself for the benefit of another. What's interesting is when we look here in chapter 13, verse 4 says that Jesus literally got up from the meal and laid down to me his garments. Did he do it because he was supposed to? Did he do it because someone was making it? No. He willingly laid it down. He, he took it off. He initiated this. And then in verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he lambanoed his garments. He took them up. It's all according to his plan. It's the intended climax. It's this active participant of the sovereign Lord of all of history. I have authority to lay it down, whether it's my garment or my life, and I have authority to take it up again, whether it's my clothes or reversing death's finality in resurrection. And so the first foot washing naturally leads into the second. Jesus is choosing both. One as a parable of the ultimate that will come the next day. So when Peter protests, this is what Jesus says in verse 8 as his answer. I'm amplifying in light of what we just explored. Jesus says to Peter, unless I wash you, unless I walk this road of utter humility, which looks like this washing now, but will look more fully like the humility of the cross, which is the only way to atone for your sins and bring cleansing to your heart, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. You cannot follow me into newness of life. And then in verse 10, he says, you are clean, though not every one of you. And there's another one of those injected references to the betrayer. Why does John inject those references? Well, the obvious answer is this is the night he's going to be betrayed, and Jesus, John, the gospel writer, is setting up uh, the account, right? he's, He's getting us ready for the shocking act of Judas Iscariot. But I think John, the gospel writer, also wants to highlight something of a contrast between two diametrically opposed ways. And that's why he mentions these little tidbits in the, the, the narrative about Judas. There is the way of Satan on one hand, and there's the way of God on the other hand. Twice in John 13, um, Satan is directly linked to Judas's betrayal. Verse, one, uh, verse 2, the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. And then later on in a text that, uh, passage that we didn't, uh, part of the passage we didn't read, verse 27, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him, and then he was gone into the dark of the night. There's the way of Satan, represented by Judas in this betrayer, a betrayal, and then there's the way of God. What is Judas about? As an apostle, he was given immense privilege to walk with the Messiah for several years, to to 
sit at his feet, to watch him minister. Incredible privilege. But his desire, Judas's, was for his own glory and gain. And we get these hints throughout the Gospels that he became frustrated with the direction of Jesus' mission. Instead of power and victory and conquering, Jesus was choosing humility and weakness on the road to death. And Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. In contrast, there's the way of God. Jesus' shocking act of servant humility. Self-glory goes out the window in the foot washing. Jesus passes up gain in order to embrace loss of pride, of status, of privilege. Judas' way is rebellion against the king. It's prideful scorning of God's way of salvation as if that would work. It's disdain for weakness. It is the way of physical and spiritual death. And the end of Judas's life shows the fruit that comes from that investment. But Jesus' way is the way of life. It happens to go through death, Good Friday, but it comes out the other side in newness of life, Easter Sunday. Uh, Jim Collins wrote a, a couple of books that were linked. One of them is called Good to Great. And uh, in it, he profiles leaders of unique organizations that have turned uh, themselves around and uh, achieved uncommon success. And he remarks at uh, what he calls level five leadership. And this is what he writes. The good to great leaders seem to have come from Mars. Self-effacing, quiet, reserved, even shy, these leaders are a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. They are more like Lincoln and Socrates than Patton or Caesar. I think Jim Collins could have said, level five leaders are more like Jesus than they are like Judas. Jesus has this, it doesn't make sense kind of quality to him. Verse three, all power and authority given to the son. Verse four, he got up and washed their feet. There's this paradox. There's this um, personal humility, self-effacing. Jesus must be from Mars because messiahs just don't do this kind of stuff. And yet he has this professional will. Collins adds that a level five leader is an individual who blends extreme personal humility with intense professional will. Their ambition is first and foremost for the institution, not themselves. Here is the miracle of the gospel. That the God-man, the perfect son, divine and human, his, his ambition was first and foremost in ultimate service of sinful people like us, even at the cost of his own life. Uncommon humility combined with directed professional will, all for the cause of the institution. What's the institution? It's a messed up bunch of people. <laughs> it's a hospital full of sinners, broken, dysfunctional, unlovable. That's the institution, the church. Jesus is laser-focused in rescuing. We kick off Passion Week today, as we said earlier. But this is not a week to feel sorry for Jesus because he suffered. This is not a week to think, poor Jesus, he went through a lot, 
he had to die, we should remember him and sing some sad songs uh, in commemoration. Not at all. The songs will be in a minor key Thursday and Friday to fit what we remember, but he is no failed leader. He is no wannabe revolutionary. He is not a tragic historical figure who was ahead of his time. He did his best to advance society, to um, bring about this new societal transformation, but the people of his time weren't ready for him. That's not his story. His humility and ambition to serve others at the highest personal cost through humility was precisely the plan that he and his father had arranged from all eternity past. I don't know about you, but as I reflected late last night on the last part of John chapter 13, I realized this. I don't like to tithe me. I prefer to Lombano. I don't like to lay down anything, give up anything, give myself uh, sacrificially to other people. I prefer to take up. I prefer to get, for me, personal glory and gain. I prefer, I have to confess, so very often the way of Judas to the way of God and the cross and of Christ. And I need to repent of that and guard against walking through the services this week saying, thank you, Jesus, but failing to realize why he went to his cross, why he suffered and bled. We know why Jesus, how Jesus took up his life. Lombano. He took it up through resurrection. But we can't skip over the fact that Jesus first laid it down. Tithemi gave it up, sacrificed in great humility. This is the wonder of the gospel that we will mourn through Saturday. That the perfect God-man, Jesus, the Messiah, our Savior, the rightful King, the sovereign one over all of the universe, took the place of sinners on that cross served as a substitute, the perfect Lamb of God as this Passion Week begins. My prayer, my desire for you as well as for myself would that it be that we would take the time to deeply reflect on our sinful hearts, look in the spiritual mirror, not like what we see, but study it, confess it, Agree with God. This is truth. This is reality. This is who I am, ugly in my sin. And determine to turn away from it, what the Bible calls repentance. And then to trust, either for the first time, because you don't know this Savior yet, trust in this Jesus, or to reaffirm freshly and more deeply than ever before your trust that this Savior Jesus alone provides you with the way to newness of life. Let's pray toward that end. Lord, we are those whom you need to rescue. We are those whose sins necessitated your suffering, your betrayal, your wrongful arrest and torture, 
your giving of your life on the cross. Lord, by your Holy Spirit in and among us, this week especially, show us our sin. Lead us to deep grief and repentance. Because we're weak and because that's not the whole gospel, Lord, lead us quickly to know newness of life is offered, is promised, is reality, because we already know the end of the story. We know resurrection awaits. We know that the tomb is empty. We know life is promised to us as we trust in the risen Savior, Jesus. But first, Lord, before he rises, he is crucified. And so uh, allow us to remain in that moment throughout this week to see our sin, but to see the Savior in our place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.